My name is Joe Fish and I'm a producer at The Big Story. And I'm joined today by... Ebby and Abdegar. And I'm also a producer at The Big Story. So it's been a great year at The Big Story, I think. I think we've um, we've done some some unique things that we've never really done before. We've partnered with the Narwhal. We've done a whole week of healthcare stories. Is there one episode in particular that you feel really resonated with you while you were listening? One story that I had been watching pretty closely, like I believe most people have, is the Pope coming to Canada to apologize to indigenous people of this land. And I think for myself as a journalist, that has been a story that I was aware would eventually happen at some point. But the question of, you know, what is a meaningful apology after something just so devastating and the church responsible for that comes here to say two words. I'm sorry. And I think the entirety of the episode gave me a lot of pause to just reflect because what does sorry mean if nothing has really changed? It was interesting to hear her talk about that with Jordan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would just say listen to the episode. I think that's very good advice. And uh, (laughs) Ebian, thank you so much for this. Thanks, Joe. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. Last week, the Pope came to Canada primarily to say sorry. Pope Francis on First Nations territory has delivered an historic apology meant to right a wrong of the past. Pope Francis has delivered a historic apology to the indigenous community in Canada. An emotional apology from Pope Francis for devastating abuse at residential schools in Canada. The apology had been a long time coming. The impact it will have on Indigenous Canadians, on reconciliation in this country, and on the Catholic Church itself remains to be seen. For now, perhaps the most generous description of reaction to the Pope's visit is mixed. He didn't address the doctrine of discovery. Uh, We've been asking for the revoking of the doctrine of discovery since the beginning of this journey, and he didn't address it at all. We can't bring them back, right? It really hurts. An apology today won't erase anything. The experience already happened. We want to see some action behind this trip and not just lip service it cannot be that way it cannot be just a photo op it has to be real work will this apology this admission of genocide and this attempt to make things right provide any real comfort for the survivors of residential schools or for the families who are mourning those who didn't make it out or will it offer a neat little storybook ending for those who might wish to sweep the horrors of history under the rug. Will this apology matter in a practical sense? What happens after the man who supposedly talks to God says sorry? What comes next? 
I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Patty Krawick is an Anishinaabe writer from Lac Soul First Nation. She is the co-host of the podcast Medicine for the Resistance. She wrote about the papal apology for a handful of publications last week, including the Yellowhead Institute. Hey, Patty. Hello. I want to ask you first, I guess, what you were expecting when you heard that the Pope was coming to Canada. He was apparently going to apologize uh, for genocide, for residential schools. I know a lot of people felt uh, ambivalent, I guess, about this decision. What did you expect to happen? Well, I think I, I expected what we got, right? I mean, it's a large institution, although he did apologize for, you know, for at times protecting the institution at the expense of the people, um, you know, at the expense of the people within it, at the expense of the Indigenous people. That's still what he's doing. He's still, you know, making this pilgrimage, making this apology. It's very late in coming. I mean, the Anglican, Presbyterian, the United Churches apologized quite a lot, you know, quite a few years ago. People have been asking the Catholic Church to apologize for a long time, even up till last year. People didn't think it was going to happen. You know, so and and he they're still holding on to records. They're still so I, I kind of expected this spectacle, what we got of you know, the pilgrimage, the sad faces. I think it was it was important for you know, for survivors and for a lot of people to hear the things that he was said, the acknowledging the harms and the wrongdoings, they felt validated. They felt heard. I mean, like I said, the other churches had apologized, made better apologies, in my opinion. But this church ran the vast majority of schools. And, you know, so for him to acknowledge that, yes, these wrongs were committed on our watch, I think, you know, for survivors, that was really important. The spectacle the spectacle validated the things that they have been talking about. And I think even like over the last year, since, you know, since the graves have have come to light again, I mean, like there's a whole section of it in the Truth and Reconciliation um, report that came out a number of years ago. But again, you know, Canadians just keep being surprised by this stuff. And we've seen denialism in, in the media. We've seen, you know, reporters saying, well, where are the bodies and where's this and where's that? And it wasn't that bad. So f- for the Pope to do this, you know, to come in his wheelchair and to say these things, I- I'm not going to say that that isn't important. I mean, I think the apology left a lot to be desired, but I think the spectacle and the presence, I think it was very important. What did it leave to be desired? How do you make a proper apology for something on this magnitude? Well, and it's way beyond this magnitude, right? Like, but he talked about the role of the church. He talked repeatedly about individual acts of harm. Like I said, he talked about the institution protecting itself. He talked about individuals and the church participating in the harms of colonization, you know, but he talked about it as if as if the church didn't have a thousand years of history of doing this stuff, of doing it in Europe, of doing it in, you know, in the Spanish missions throughout Central America and Mexico and and what became the U.S. That was, you know, one of the pieces that I wrote was for Religion News Services where I said, okay, but what about Junipero Serra? This is the priest, this is the pope who hurried the canonization of Serra, who ran nine missions in California that were terrible places 
you know, there were places of violence when they studied them, more natives were being were died there when then were being born. These missions were not good, happy places. They as you read about them, they sound a lot like residential schools, and yet they predate Canada and the US. You know, so it's not like Canada and the US put the church in this awkward situation where, you know, now, you know, the people who wanted to prey on kids had a place to go. The, the church has already been doing this. And so the apology doesn't acknowledge that. They've apologized for abuses in Ireland and in Boston and in Pennsylvania and in, in all kinds of places. They keep apologizing for these things that are a big part of who the church has been globally, who because it's happened in Africa, it's happened in Australia, it's happened in South America. Like, where hasn't it happened that the church has been? That would be, you know, a really good question for somebody to answer, because I I don't think you would find any place that the church has set foot where this has not happened and been hidden. One of the reasons we wanted to talk to you this week, as opposed to in the middle of the apology tour, um, first of all, probably because you were very busy last week, but also mostly because the thing I had on my mind was if there would be certain outlets in the media or just certain Canadians who are kind of committed to the idea of, of Canada as an exceptional nation, um, who would kind of use this apology to like tie a bow on the whole past year and a half and our confrontation of residential schools and the graves that have been found and, and all of that stuff and sort of close the book on it. What have you seen in the wake of this visit to indicate if real change is going to continue to come from this or if we sort of are hitting the like, oh, okay, well, they apologized. Let's go. Glad that's over. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. that's really it. I mean, like Trudeau is like, all right, we can check off, you, you know, number 58 on the truth and reconciliation, you know, in the, in the calls to action. And Murray Sinclair is like, actually, no, we can't, you know, because he didn't apologize for what the church did. He apologized. It, it was a bad apples apology. Maybe can I stop you just there and you can explain what Action 58 of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission says and and why Marie Sinclair and others think it wasn't met? A call to Action 58 was the request for the Catholic Church to apologize to survivors on Canadian land for the residential schools and, and the harms. And he came very close which is why Trudeau thinks it's fine. Because yes, he did come here. He did say he was sorry for the bad things that a lot of priests did. But Sinclair is saying that he didn't because he didn't apologize because he stopped short of the church taking full responsibility for it. And at, at one point, and, and I forget, I think it was when he was um, in uh, in Laxanan, where he, he stopped just short of it. And he's saying that the church acted in you know, kind of followed colonial patterns as if the church was following in Canadian footsteps and otherwise wouldn't have done this. And so what Sinclair is saying is, no, that the Catholic Church was very much an actor in this. And that's what he wants the church to apologize for, is for being, you know, being kind of a partner in this, not an unfortunate side effect. I want to be mindful about asking you to relive your own family's trauma but I do know that you mentioned in your article that through artifacts and photographs, you were able to piece together your own family's story. Can you tell me what you learned about your family and the history with residential schools? And and speak to then maybe 
what this apology meant or didn't mean to you personally? Because I'm, I'm always wary of asking someone to speak for the whole Indigenous community. So how did it feel to you? The apologies are, are very much about the survivors, right? That's who they're talking about. Um, so talking about my dad's brothers who went to the schools, talking about, you know, my grandparents, I mean, my paternal, my paternal grandparents talking about, you know, their experiences and the things that they, and the things that they went through. But the apologies don't really address the secondary impacts of those schools, right? The things that happened to my father, because I, I mentioned in that article, he didn't actually go to the schools. Band manager um, was angry at my grandmother and who she wouldn't return to her husband. So he says, okay, your little boy, who I think he was two at the time, you know, because he's not registered in a school already, let's just erase him off the band list. And we'll say that he's the child of this man that you're living with now who didn't have status. And so just like that, my father no longer had status. And it's a really weird thing about racism in uh, in Canada is they don't care whether or not you have status right so you know so he got all of the the racist abuse that you get when everybody knows who your family is and where you live and what you know and they can see you know they can see it on your face that you're not like them but then of course the traumas of residential school come home through family and come home through you know through the adults in the community and through the siblings because the res one of the things that the schools did that it was particularly ugly and has these ripples of ripple effects in our communities is it set the children against each other. Um, it set the children so that the older children were put in control of the younger children and mirroring the behavior that they had received, you know, from from the priests and the nuns. And one thing that really struck me when I was listening to Connie Walker's podcast was there were years at St. Michael's, and you know that this isn't an isolated case, where every priest and nun would later be mentioned in complaints. You know, every one of them, there was nobody who was safe in that school. And then the kids get pitted against each other, and then they bring that home because they've got all this anger that they don't know how to deal with. You know, and, and so what, what do we do? as the children and grandchildren who are experiencing our own traumas, you know, who have experienced our own harms. And I've listened to friends talk about this and don't feel that they can speak in public about it because their parent, grandparent, uncle, abuser is a survivor and somehow set apart. You know, we talk about wanting to hold the predators accountable. We talk about that all the time. I tweeted that out one time that, you know, instead of having a list of survivors, I wanted I wanted to, uh, you know, to read out a list of the perpetrators. And, you know, somebody I know on Twitter said, well, you're going to be mentioning family members. And that's a really hard... Because, you know, when we call for justice, we have to think about that. We have to think about who this net is going to draw in. And this carceral stuff always lands hardest on Black and Indigenous people. It always lands hard. Like, there's a reason why, you know, we're winning in terms of prison population. How do you reframe that narrative? And I'm not asking you to, to fix uh, the burden that lands disproportionately on Indigenous and, and Black people in this country, but the narrative that we try to honour the survivors while not naming the perpetrators and not holding them accountable. Well, I think we build our communities 
right? Like we know who's safe and who's not safe. And we give each other space to create our own communities and deal with things in our own way. You know, there are some really good models of it's uh, of transformative justice rather than restorative justice. You know, transformative justice is a little bit different. You know, so there's some really good models of that coming out in in terms of how we how we build our communities and where we look to for authority. Like if we're always looking to the Canadian state or the church to fix what's wrong in our communities, to fix what's wrong in, you know, in our lives as Indigenous people, we're always going to get colonial answers. We're always going to get colonial solutions. And so what, what I really liked, and, and I ended, you know, two of the pieces that I wrote in this way was thinking, you know, the one of them where I had been thinking through the missions on our, because we had traveled to the missions, we'd gone um, to the Gathering of Nations powwow in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And the massive spectacle that that was. I mean, you want to talk spectacle, you know, the Pope's spectacle, this spectacle, thousands of Indigenous people dancing in one space and just the colors and the sounds and streaming down the stairs beside me and just the enormity of our presence. And the missions are empty. Like I went, I walked through those missions and they're empty. I've been to the mush hole in Brantford. It's empty. There is nobody there. And Sifiko, the Cree woman who spoke her language to the Pope and sang that song that um, for a while people were saying was the national anthem, but it wasn't. I loved what she said at the end. She says, then I turned my back on him and said, hi, hi. And I shook it off. I'm not going to look for solutions to the to the issues that our communities face. I'm not going to look to the, to the Canadian state for them. I'm not going to, the apology is important. It was necessary to validate the survivors, but that is not where the solution for our communities lies. The solution for our communities lies within ourselves because the colonial state failed, right? We see it at Land Back Lane. We see it at Wet'suwet'en. They can draw the boundaries around Canada and say that that's what it is, but we are still holding on to lands. We still have language. We still have traditional beliefs. We still have our feet on the places where we emerged as peoples. It failed. Those schools are empty and we're still here. Tell me a little bit more about some of the ways that Indigenous people and communities made their feelings known uh, to the Pope last week and, and what it means. Well, there were protests. I mean, you know, people, you know, holding banners, you know, expect, you know, asking him to denounce or or rescind the doctrine of discovery. There were groups in Nunavut who very clearly said, we're not going, you know, we're not going to go and see the Pope. You can go if you want to, but we're not going. Like there were public statements in in that regard. You know, there was a lot of action on Twitter in terms of talking about, you you know, the things that could have been said and, and should have been said. And I think those things were also... Also important for for the survivors to hear, for the people who were looking for some kind of closure or resolution from the church to remind them too that we're bigger than this, right? We're bigger, we're bigger that he's gonna he's gone back to Rome. And he mentioned genocide just as he's like flying off into the sunset and leaving our jurisdiction. Right? So you know, so he did he did mention it, which which is good. Also validating. It would have been nice to have heard that in a different context. And um, 
one of the uh, a Mohawk reporter did ask him about that. And he gave kind of a really long or asked him about the doctrine of discovery. And he did kind of give this really long rambly answer that didn't answer her question. Um, but I thought that was really important. A lot of the other reporters were asking very general questions about him. So having her on the plane to be able to ask that really pointed question was really important. For those unaware of Christian doctrine, what was the doctrine of discovery and how does rescinding it play into the decolonization movement? Well, the doctrine of discovery is a collection of papal bulls and legal orders and theologies. It actually spans about 400 years from the 11th century up to the 15th century. So it's not like a single thing, you, you know, that could, that could be repealed. It's this whole big collection of, uh, of documents and theology. And it basically laid out the rules of engagement. What do what do Christians do when they come to a place where there are non-Christians, you know, when they arrive in Africa or, you know, and later on as they came to the new world, when they arrive in a place where there are new people, how do you navigate those relationships and what do you do with the land? And so it laid out all of those rules. So it's 400 years of legal documents. So rescinding the document, the doctrine of discovery, I'm really a mixed feeling about whether it's useful or not. I have been told by some legal experts like uh, Bruce McIver and others who said that it would actually have rescinding this saying, okay, it's no longer in play, would actually impact future land claim agreements. I mean, they're legal documents, right? So they set legal precedent. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg cited it when she denied an Oneida land claim back in 2005. So it's very much part of the law of Canada and the US. So it could affect future land claims because they would no longer be able to rely on that legal precedent. Um, but it would also shift the relationship with the Indigenous peoples because it says that we were empty, that we're not Christian, we're not human. And so it would shift those rules too around citizenship and who belongs in place and who doesn't. But I think that's a much bigger ask because now you're asking people to change how they think. I mean, that that way of thinking is directly linked to the not guilty verdict and the murder of Colton Bushi and, and other acts of violence that have happened. It's these ideas of who belongs here and who doesn't. And according to the doctrine of discovery, we don't belong here, even though we were already here. The last thing I want to get at, uh, and again, this is why we waited till the whole visit was over, just to make sure. What do you think comes next from the Catholic Church? What have they committed to? What are you hopeful to see? I mean, if anything. If anything. I'd love to see, well, I would like to see them release records. That's something that came out very clearly in Duncan McHugh and Connie Scott's podcasts um, about how they're, they're holding on to records. They know who these people are. They know who they are and they know where they are. Canada, too. Canada has all of that information from, um, you know, from the class action lawsuit. So we know who these people are and however they're going to be held accountable. I mean, I'm an abolitionist, so I'm not asking for police intervention, but we know who they are and their accountability is still is still really important. Um, you know, so I would like to see them release records. I would like to see them return land. I would like to see Catholic Church owns an awful lot of land in Canada. I would like to see them. I mean, the doctrine of discovery is much bigger than that. The doctrine of discovery also talks about who belongs on the land and who doesn't. And we also were empty and, you know, and needed saving. And that's a big part of the doctrine of discovery as well. But they could return land. That would be huge. 
they could return, they, they could turn over church buildings to indigenous, you, you know, to indigenous leadership. How would that change the relation of the church if they were now motivated to not be evicted from their buildings? If their landlords were now indigenous people, how is that going to change their relationship with that indigenous community if they are now motivated not, you know, to, to hold on to their lease? <laughs> So the church could do that. That's something very simple that the church could do. Turn over its land um, with with lease agreements. And then now now we're your landlords and now you're going to treat us differently. What about the rest of Canadians? And here I'm speaking specifically to, to what we chatted about a few minutes ago, which is like, you know, check off call to action number 58. And it's been an uncomfortable last year and a half. And, you know, who might be tempted to sort of tune this out or, or view it as, you know, the ending of this part of a story. What do Canadians need to do to make sure that we continue to hold space for Indigenous people and their struggles in Canada? Well, I think there's a lot they can do. I mean, that alone is just a good thought exercise of what if you did return your land to Indigenous people and we were your landlords? How does that change the relationship of the way you do business? You know, the way your business operates, the way you use your land. That's even if you can't physically do it because you don't actually own the land, you can think about it and you can think, well, okay, so it's if I acted like this was indigenous land, how would that change, you know, the policies of my organization? How, you know, do you have seats on your board for indigenous people? If you have a land acknowledgement, are you paying rent to anybody? I have a foundation, the Nikanagana Foundation, that collects rent, you know, and, and disperses it to Indigenous people. I have a book coming out um, called Becoming Kin, and that's basically what it's about: is how we can, how we, how we can move forward, how we can understand how we got here, and how we can then move forward in a good relationship. Because land back doesn't mean everybody going back to Europe. I mean, what am I going to get split in half? My mom is European. My dad is Ojibwe. That's a ridiculous idea. You know, so nobody's going anywhere. Um, although maybe some rich people will leave cottage country. That would be great. Um, but how do we live together? And so that's, I wrote this book. It's called Becoming Kin. And it comes out in September. And every chapter ends with a thing that people can do. Look at your bookcase. That's where it starts is look around you. Where are the indigenous people in your life? Where are they on your bookshelf? Where are they on your TV set? Where are they in your day-to-day -day existence? Are they anywhere? Are they service people? Are they, are they people you give money to as you walk down the street? Like who are they and where are they? And then each chapter kind of ends with another task, a thing you can do that, okay, so what do I do with this, you know, the, the, this apology, all this stuff that everybody is talking about? What do I do? And there are things, there are things you can do. And it starts by noticing us. And how do you see us? How do we fit into Patty, your life? thank you so much for that. That's a great practical note to end on and looking forward to your book. Well, thank you very much for having me. Patty Krawick, co-host of the podcast Medicine for the Resistance, and as mentioned in this interview, the author of Becoming Kin, an Indigenous call to unforgetting the past and reimagining our future. You can go pre-order it wherever you get your books. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can talk to us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. You can, of course, email us, hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca, and call us. An old-fashioned phone will give you a voicemail. You can leave whatever you wish, 416-935-5935. 
The Big Story is in every single podcast player on Earth, I think, I hope. And it's also available on your smart speaker if you ask it to play The Big Story podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.